Okay, well, welcome again, once again. Uh, we're going to uh, continue in Psalms, so we'll be in Psalms uh, 136 uh, through 139, good Lord willing, here tonight and get through all of it. And uh, just as a, as a recall, um, the Psalms are broken into five different books, and so we're in the last of the five books, and the the grouping of book five is Psalm, uh, Psalms 107 to 150. And so the, the book that matches up with the fifth book of Psalms is the fifth book of the Torah, which is Deuteronomy. And so that's like its sister book, which we'll be uh, hitting a couple verses from there uh, this evening. But when I turned to my Bible and uh, went to the beginning of this, this book and, and back to Psalm 107, I saw that I had some notes written down and uh, I don't know if we have uh, one of the slides, maybe, or not from, from that. So I had some notes written down uh, that said, we'll see God's has said, <clears throat> and that verses 1 and 43 of that psalm are the basic lessons of this book, of this, this fifth book of the psalms. And so has said meaning steadfast love or loyal love. So what is verse 1 of Psalm 107? So if, if uh, there we go. Oh, all right, perfect. So verse 1 says, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endures forever. And if you learn nothing else from this evening, right, it's going to be that teaching, <laughs> this uh, attribute of God, especially after our first psalm in Psalm 136. We're going to hear that quite a bit. Uh, verse 43 of uh, chapter 107 says, whoever is wise will observe these things and they will understand the loving kindness of the Lord. So when it says, will observe these things, what things, right? So they're going to, it's going to, you're going to see the God's has said and understand the loving kindness of the Lord. My note on verse 43 was rich in Christ and saved from sin. And then I also had another one said, make God big in our lives. And so these are some of the key, th key themes of, of the book five, and that those things will be touched on here as we go through Psalm 136 through 139. So with that backdrop, uh, let's, let's pray and dig into the Psalms tonight. So Lord, uh, we just come before you once again, uh, opening up your word, Lord, to, to your eternal truths, and uh, that you're knowing that your mercy or your steadfast and loyal love endures forever how grateful we are for that, Lord, even in the midst of trials and exiles that we'll read about here this evening. Lord, relate it, help, us, help us to relate it to our lives now and some of the things that we are going through. Help us to feel your presence here, even if we're in a valley period or on a mountaintop experience. But if we're in a valley period, Lord, help, help us to feel your presence and to know that you're here and that you're providing a way through. And we just pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So last week, Tim finished uh, Psalm 135. And uh, the, this next grouping of Psalms 136 to 140, they're saying they're Psalms of Thanksgiving. And I would say that's mostly true. When we get to Psalm 137, uh, it'll be a little bit challenging to turn that into a Psalm of Thanksgiving. But we'll talk a little bit more about that uh, when we get there. But Psalm 136 um, was arranged for, if for your choir buffs, antiphonal singing. And so antiphonal singing was, is, or is, when you have different groups of people uh, will sing one part and another group sings another part. So it could be the left and then the right, men, women, etc. And so that was the way this psalm was written, was for this arrangement of antiphonal singing. And obviously, as you'll see, his mercy endures forever is occurring in every verse. And we'll see that here. And so this is also called a Hallel or a praise psalm. And this was sung at the beginning of Passover. And it was a favorite uh, psalm, uh, a favorite temple song. And we know that from 1 Chronicles 16 and Ezra 3.11. But we also know it from 2 Chronicles um, chapter 20, verse 21. So I think we have another scripture verse up there uh, as well. So Second Chronicles 20, 21. And this was when Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir, they had this battle. Uh, verse 21 goes like this. And when he had consulted with the people, 
He appointed those who should sing to the Lord and who should praise the beauty of holiness as they went out before the army and were saying, praise the Lord for his mercy endures forever. So if you're catching that, that's the singers are going in front of the army, going into the battle. So Jason, you know, heads up, you might be called in uh, to, to do that one, one day, right? And so they were charged with the singers going first and they were to sing this psalm and, and they did it and they did praise the Lord for his mercy endures forever. And I won't read you the whole rest of it, but let's just say God caused the great confusion of the enemies that day and they basically wiped each other out. And so Israel, Judah came in and basically everybody was already wiped out. And so they just collected the spoils and went on their way. And so this was a favorite temple, uh, temple psalm, uh, you know, of the people for, for that and for other reasons. So uh, as we get into Psalm 136, I'm uh, going to steal a chapter from uh, Chuck Smith, uh, who, since we're coming out of the Jesus Revolution and we can have a connection back to our founder, Chuck Smith here, when he taught this psalm, because it's an antiphonal psalm, uh, he had his fellowship read it that way. So he had the men read the first part and the women are going to read the refrain, Okay. So now I'm going to need some audience participation here. And so now that I know we just ate a good meal and that we're kind of settling into our seats, but we need the rich in mercy, saved from sin, Christ-centric uh, guttural response as we read this psalm. So uh, I'm looking out and I'm not really feeling the like, okay, we're, we're going to do this, right? So, uh, all right, let's go, guys. We're going to start it off. And then ladies, you, you sing the second, you, you say the second part. And we're going to read it all the way through. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. Okay, guys, I can't say it. I have to leave my mic on and not talk. So, yes, all right. All right. All right. No, it sounded good. So I think as, as Chuck said, um, I think they're, God's trying to tell us that his mercy endures forever, right? He's getting that point across. So if we go back to the beginning, um, and oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good, for his mercy endures forever. So mercy, mercy is that, um, is that holding back of which we deserve, right? Tim spoke on Sunday that uh, 
basically about grace, right? And grace is that, you know, unmerited gift of God, right? And, and, but this, this psalm speaks of mercy, which is God holding back what they and what we deserve. And that, uh, and, you know, the psalmist wants us to know that this mercy endures forever. God is holding it back. And what is being held back? It's God's righteous wrath for us and for Satan too, I suppose, right? But it won't endure forever for Satan, but it's enduring forever for us. So verse 2 says, O give thanks to, to the God of gods, and O give thanks to the Lord of lords. And so going into Deuteronomy, we have another verse up in Deuteronomy here, but De Deuteronomy 10:17 says, For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who, so, who shows no partiality, nor takes a bribe. So the fifth book of the Bible and the fifth book of the Psalms are very synonymous in what they're uh, telling us who God is. Verse four says, to him who alone does great wonders. So alone, um, you know, nothing is great apart from the Lord. And we know that Jesus said, apart from me, you are nothing. And so what is a great wonder? Well, this is kind of like the answer for Sunday school class. If you don't know, you just say Jesus, right? Because Jesus never fails right? We know that. And so here it'll be his mercy endures forever, right? What's a great wonder? That his mercy endures forever. So verse five, to him who by wisdom made the heavens, this gives credit to him alone, his perfect wisdom. He's omniscient. He alone is omniscient. I'm not omniscient. You know, you're not omniscient, but God is. God is all knowing. Verse six, to him who laid out the earth above the water, waters, only he laid out the earth above the waters. If you remember in Job, you know, Job was, you know, having the discussion with God and God said, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth, right? Where were you at? You weren't there. I was there. I alone was there. I created. We talked about the great lights and the sun to rule by day and the moon and the stars to rule by night. Again, only he created, God created, he's, even though he's a triune God, one being three persons, uh, but it's God alone that created. And so the next set of verses here, verses 10 through 15, really speak to a you know, pivotal event in obviously Israel's history. So it says, to him who struck Egypt in their firstborn and brought Israel out from among them with a strong hand and an outstretched arm, he who divided the Red Sea, caused Israel to pass through it, overthrew Pharaoh and his army in the Red Sea, right, for his mercy endures forever. So this is speaking to the Passover and the deliverance from sin, you know, the pinnacle event for the Israelites, and it's him alone that did this. And even when I read, um, when I read about uh, verse 12 with a strong hand and an outstretched arm, I often think of Moses being the one who had the outstretched arm in his hand, but even the psalmist knew it wasn't Moses, it was God. It was God alone that actually did this. It was the power of God. So verses 16 through 20, um, you know, lead us into, um, into the next, into the, the next venture after he set them free uh, through the Red Sea. And it says, to him who led his people through the wilderness, to him who struck down great kings and slew famous kings and Sion, the king of the Amorites, and Og, the king of Bashan. So what is that all about? So we know again from the sister book in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 29.7 tells us that, and when you, come, when you came to this place, Sion, king of Heshbon, and Og, king of Bashan, came out against us to battle, and we conquered them. So they remembered this, that God gave them the power to conquer these great kings. And verse 21 continues, and gave their land as a heritage, a heritage to Israel, his servant. So essentially the land they got from Sion, the king of Heshbon, and Og, the king of Bashan, basically became the land, uh, the inheritance for the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh. So this was part of God's promise going into the promised land. This was part of the territory that was becoming Israel's. So he delivered them through the wilderness to the promised land, him alone. He's alone that did that. They were in Egypt for 400 years. So what did they know about traveling in the wilderness, right? All this way, they, they only had the clothes on their back. They, get, they were able to get some jewelry and some gold from the Egyptians, right? But they had no weapons. They had no plowshares. 
So it was God alone that was taking them through the wilderness, providing water, manna, striking down kings. And he held, this, he held his promise, right, despite uh, Israel being weak and not walking in the promises of God. So Deuteronomy 29, uh, 2 through 6 says, talks about Moses and called the, all of the Israel and said to them, you have seen all that the Lord did before your eyes in the land of Egypt to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to his land, the great trials with which your eyes have seen the signs and those great wonders. And so he goes on. And at the end, this is like the amazing part. Your clothes have not worn out on you and your sandals have not worn out on your feet. You have not eaten bread and you have not drunk wine or similar drink. And all that time, they're walking around the wilderness and the desert and their clothes never wore out. <laughs> their shoes never wore out. The things that were staple products to them, bread and wine and other drinks similar to it, they didn't have, but yet God carried them all the way through. And he says, so you may know that I am the Lord your God. So 12 spies went into the promised land Ten were afraid, two were confident, and, uh, and they had to wander around the desert for 40 years because God said they're going to have to, they're not going to be able to come in, they're going to die, right? They can't come in. But he could have just wiped them out as soon as they said we're not going in, right? He, but he was kind to them. He was, showed mercy to them. Their clothes could have just deteriorated off their bodies. Their sandals could have worn out. You know, it could have been horrific, but his mercy endures forever. He was kind and merciful to him, even when they were not obeying. So verse 23 says, who remembered us in our lowly state? And 24 continues and rescued us from our enemies and gives food to all flesh. It says, oh, give thanks, verse 26, to the God of heaven for his mercy endures forever. So in all ways and in all circumstances, his mercy endures forever. Even so, many of the attributes of God are rolled up into that one fact or this one fact and is proven by the fact that his mercy or his steadfast or royal love is, endures forever. You know, so God is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And one way we know it is his mercy endures forever. Despite what is going on with us, he and his mercy are eternally the same. So even saying that, saying it that way is that it endures forever. You know, endurance implies that it's some, that it, it implies something, does it not? It is long suffering work. It's a tremendous amount of unimaginable work to withhold the floodgates of wrath that's due to us. And it's really not anything for God to do it. I mean, he's God after all, but in our kind of earthly inability to describe it any other way, right, is that we make it tough on him, right? So, you know, with our sin and people railing on him constantly, and it's such that he has to endure, but oh, give thanks to the God because of his enduring mercy. He does it willingly and gladly. Okay, so switching over to Psalm 137. This is the one where uh, the, the Halley's commentator calls this the... Uh, these are the Thanksgiving Psalms, and he includes this psalm in it. And when we read it, you're going to say, I'm not so sure there's a lot of Thanksgiving uh, that I'm feeling out of this. So, but you have to understand, they're in the exile in this psalm. So they have been exiled from Jerusalem, and they're now in Babylon. And so as you're going to read, it's a little bit dark. But what the commentator said was, it doesn't just end here. You have to go to Psalm 126, which we've already covered, which is when they return from the exile. So they get out of Babylon and they return to Jerusalem. And that Psalm is full of gratitude and happiness because they have returned. So I guess the point being at first, I was like, well, that's kind of a stretch to call it a Psalm of Thanksgiving for 137 to be called that. But if you think about it, the story doesn't end <laughs> with exile. The story ends with being returned to the promised land. And I think that's a message for us, right? Even if we're in a dark period, um, we do, God doesn't leave us there, right? He might have us there for a season, but he takes us all the way through. So the title of this psalm uh, is Longing for Zion in a Foreign Land. And so 
Zion is just synonymous with Jerusalem. It's another word for Jerusalem. So they were longing for Jerusalem in this land of Babylon. And perhaps there are those of us here that uh, might be in this state now, like longing or yearning for happy days, for happy times, a happy place in your lives or my life, and that we're really longing for it, and maybe a bit melancholy over it even, if you will. So if that's you, if you're here and you're like that, you know, God, you, God's relating to you. He knows that his people have been there. He was with his people and he saw his people through it. So uh, don't fret uh, and, and uh, you know, just hang with us as we go through uh, this psalm. There is good news on the other side. So 137, uh, verse 1, By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down. Yea, we wept. When we remembered Zion or Jerusalem, we hung our harps upon the willows in the midst of it. So the picture of this scene is set. You know, this is, they're talking about we and they. So this is a, a group of people, it's plural, and they're in captivity. They're in Babylon. And it says, we sat down and yea, we wept, which is the, the position of mourning. So this was, they were mourning. They were quite sad over the situation that they were in. You know, but Babylon was powerful, luxurious, rich, the hanging gardens, the economically successful, I mean, and the rivers, and they're by the rivers and these massive weeping willows. And so not a bad place, but it's exile. They didn't want to be there, even though it was still a, a beautiful place. It is exile for them. And there's no coincidence that they were hanging their harps, which is the sign of the harps they played to kind of calm their souls, to make them happy, and they were hanging their harps on weeping willows, right? This is uh, the psalmist trying to get our attention to say this was, a, this was a dark time. They were too low to even play themselves into comfort. They couldn't, they couldn't reach down enough to say, hey, we're just going to play ourselves out of it, right? There was such great lament as they looked back towards uh, and remembered Jerusalem. So what were they weeping over? Well, they were weeping over the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. So the Babylonians came in and destroyed the temple, raised it to the ground, and uh, left nothing there. Their friends and their family, many perished. Uh, many were left behind, and many they may not see again. They lost almost everything they had, or some of them may be everything they had. I picture a tornado or a hurricane victim. You see it, and boom, everything is gone in an instant. That's what happened to many of them. So they had a bleak future, at least the one that they were anticipating in from the stance they were in. They didn't know when it would end or if it would end at all. And this last part kind of hit me when I was going through some of the commentators' writings. And they wept over their sin, which led them to this captivity and God's judgment. So perhaps they were sh they're shameful of the choices perhaps not speaking up when their country was going after small g-gods instead of the big g-god. Their own choices maybe in life that put them in a bad spot and they're lamenting going, oh man, had I only known uh, what I was doing and how I would end up. And so maybe some of us feel that way coming here. Things are not being the way they once were, yearning for a place or a time or a people or health that have gone away. Perhaps feeling exiled of sorts from the better times in your life or, or my life. Are you in exile of sorts right now? Well, again, hang with us as we go through this. Uh, verse 3 says, For those who carried us away captive asked of us a song, and those who plundered us requested mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. So not only on top of this, you know, they're at a really low spot, right? They're very depressed. They're yearning for Jerusalem. We just read what they were weeping over. Very difficult. And their captors said, uh, you know, said, hey, play us this song of mirth. Now, if you're like me, I didn't know what that was. Now you have a new Scrabble word, mirth, which means gladness or gaiety as shown or by or accompanied with laughter. And so their captors that, are, that put them into this situation are saying, hey, play us one of those happy-go-lucky tunes, you know. Come on, get that harp down and just start playing and, and laughing. And so how cruel, right? So, you know, I'm, I'm a humorous guy, I love humor, and I can certainly try to use it to 
just deflect something or relieve stressful situation. But, you know, that can go a little too far. But I mean, this is extremely far, right? This is not humorous. This is torment. They're, they're ridiculing the people. They're, they're making fun of their struggles because they know what they love. They can't have it. And yet they're asking them, come on, let's just play a happy song, you know? And uh, I think of often the, some of the Holocaust movies that I've seen where Hitler's soldiers were doing the same, right? They, they, uh, it was bad enough that they took them, they put them into concentration camps, but then they had them be their servants and their maids and their butlers and, oh, be happy and put on a happy face and sing for us and do all of this. It was horrific. It was torture, right? So this is very tough. This is a very tough place that they're in. So verse 4 says, How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? So this is still we. It's still a group of people. And so essentially they said, no, it's not possible, right? There's no way we are going to be able to sing a song of gladness in this foreign land. Can't do it. In verse 5, it, it starts to change. It says, If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. If I do not remember you, let my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth if I do not exalt Jerusalem above my chief joy. So now it's I and my. It's, it's personal. It's a personal relationship here as the psalmist gets it's personal uh, and gets their own feelings into this. And so they vow to never forget Jerusalem unless they be cursed and lose his skills of worshiping God. And so when Jesus is all we have, we often found, find out that the truth is that Jesus is all we need. He's our eternal hope. And for them, you know, this is their, we're on this side of the cross. They're on that side of the cross. For them, that's Jerusalem, right? So where the presence of the Lord resides, God is there and God promised them that land. And this speaker is clinging to that, like we're yearning for Jerusalem and that's where the presence of God is. And so he's not going to cast pearls in front of the swine and sing this happy song when, to this foreign, foreign land who took them captive, but he's saving it for his God that is in Jerusalem in the Holy of Holies. And so notice the very last part, it says, God is above the speaker's chief joy. So the end of verse 6 says, if I do not exalt Jerusalem above my chief joy, which to me, I just thought of Matthew 6.33 when I read that. And Matthew 6.33 says, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So it's not that uh, their chief joy isn't important. It's just God was preeminent. God was the most important above their joy. And so you're seeking God first. So he knows, God knows that we need, including exile at times, for God only chastens those whom he loves. And... Uh, <clears throat> And know that you and I are loved, not just for the chastening, but for it and by it. It's, it's a mechanism to help show his love to us because he has to get us where he needs us to be. And so for the parents out there, as parents, we often look for the things that would cause pain in our children um, the most for them to do without, right? We're looking for that thing. What can I take away from my child so that they would feel some pain right? Because I, I need them to go learn this lesson so I can get them over here. And so what would that be? And, you know, we each have our own things that we feel, uh, feel that way about. And so God knew in their hearts what they identified most with was the temple. Like even though they weren't worshiping him as they should, perhaps they got too attached to the building or the habit or the tradition, but at the root of it was God's presence that they yearned. So they yearned God's presence in Jerusalem in the Holy of Holies. And so what did he do? He removed them from it. He said, I'm going to take you away from it. And so the most painful thing that they had, the most, the most thing that they identified with, with the most, the temple in Jerusalem, he separated from it. Why? Because he loves them, right? He wanted to teach them something. So I don't know if you went through, with, through uh, this situation, maybe with your mother, but when my mother was mad at me and I did something and she gave me that old silent treatment, right? That was, that was deafening to me. And she, when she wouldn't engage me, you know, when she was mad. And so I was like, oh, and so I just yearned for the time that we could put that behind us and get that, get that relationship back. And so this speaks to the heart of even church discipline, right? It's biblical. God sets the example. It's to reconcile, to redeem, and to restore the relationship of God and man. It's not to condemn, but it's to convict. 
It's to convict hearts to yearn again to want to be in God's presence. And that's what God wanted here. He wasn't trying to do this just to be a, a mean ogre God. He wanted them to understand and yearn for him again so that he could take them back. Uh, verse 7 says, Remember, O Lord, against the sons of Edom, the day of Jerusalem, who said, Raise it, raise it to its very fine foundation. And so here we have Edom, uh, the Edomites, which are from Esau. And so Esau was Jacob's brother. Jacob is also known as Israel. So this is Israel's brother. It's family. And the Edomites were those neighbors right there, right next to Israel. And every time somebody came to fight against Israel, the Edomites joined in. They jumped on it as well. And so could you imagine? I know Tim gave the example of his brother throwing stones at him in the gravel driveway. It would be like every time he was out there, if somebody else was out there throwing it at Tim, his brother would go join that guy and throw, they'd both throw him at Tim, right? So every time somebody was coming to attack Israel, the Edomites jumped in. So they didn't have one enemy to fight. They had two enemies uh, to fight. So, or perhaps there's those of us that root for anyone playing our most hated rival. Hmm. We want to join forces with anyone that's going against this team or that team or maybe even this political party or that political party or that candidate or this candidate. You know, yikes, right? So, so maybe it's a time for us to do a quick heart check here, I guess, but I digress. We're really talking about pesky Edomites, but, you know, that can be us sometimes too, right? So verse 8 says, O daughter of Babylon, who are to be destroyed? Happy the one who repays you as you have served us. Happy the one who takes and dashes your little ones against the rock. Wow, so this is pretty harsh, right? So at first it sounds dark, like Israel's no better than the Babylonians that are asking for a song of mirth at their lowest point uh, to be happy about children, you know, being treated this way. But really this word happy isn't necessarily like happy, I'm glad that this is happening. It's more satisfied or morally fulfilling, right? It's God's wrath was, is being met. It's being satisfied. It's being paid. And so one of the commentators stated this, God, God never delights in judgment, but God delights in mercy. And wow, I said, I wish you'd get that on a t-shirt. But then I also said, can I say that about myself? What do I prefer? Do I prefer being judgmental or do I prefer giving mercy? And that was really something that hit me. And so I'm still thinking about that. Maybe that hits you too. But I guess think of a murder trout and uh, often after years of waiting and mourning and lack of closure and when the life sentence or the death sentence is handed out, they interview the victim's family and they are happy that justice was served even though they're not truly happy, right? They're not really happy that um, the pain is still real, their, their missing loved one is still not back, but they have closure. Justice has been served. So the wrath has been met. That's what this word happy means in this, in this sense. Uh, the other thing to note is that Warren Wearsby points out that while God used the Babylonians and the exile as a form of justice, his judgment on the sins of Israel, he was using this again to get them back and reconciled, the Babylonians went too far. They took it too far. The torture, the inhumanity, the killing, the taunting, the shaming. And so they went beyond where God really intended them to be to teach Israel a lesson. And so God needed his wrath to be met regarding what they now did and their overage, their abuse of the Israelites. And so here, the Israelites, are, or God can be happy, but not really happy. It's more satisfied, um, you know, over serving justice here to the Babylonians that took it too far. And so the Israelites here know that God is perfectly just and they trust his perfect justice will be transacted as they look forward to that time knowing that vengeance is mine, says the Lord. They know that God's going to do it. He has the ability to do this, and uh, he will take care of it. And he's not necessarily happy, but he's just satisfied when the judgment and the sentence is final. So again, Psalm 137, not necessarily a Thanksgiving psalm, but when you continue on to 126, even though that was before this psalm, when they're back in Jerusalem, that's filled with gratitude. So they didn't stay in this state of a melancholy state. The Lord actually restored them after he taught them the lesson and they got to return to Jerusalem, which they longed for. So again, tying it back to us, if we're in, a, if we're in an exile of sorts, 
you know, take, take heed. God will see you in it and through it and back and reconciled, whether it's on this side of the cross or the other. All right, Psalm 138 says, I will praise you with my whole heart before the gods. I will sing praises of you. And so this psalm is a psalm of David, and it's titled, The Lord's Goodness to the Faithful. So it says, I will praise you with my whole heart before the gods. I will sing praises to you. Psalm 119.46 says, I will speak of your testimonies also before kings, and I will not be ashamed. And so the handwritten notes I had in my Bible says, Be a witness, and that this takes boldness. So a king's going to want you to worship and bow down to him. Pagan kings are going to want you to bow down to a small g god. But see the boldness in this psalmist, uh, in what David's saying here in this. He said, not that I'm going to whisper my belief before gods, with, but he says, I'm going to praise you with my whole heart before the small g gods. I will sing praises to you. So this is being bold, a bold witness in front of a of another God and another king, right? And so this takes a, a bold faith. Verse 2 says, I will worship towards your holy temple. And so in 1 Kings, we understand that uh, Solomon dedicated the temple and he talked a lot about God watching the people of Israel pray towards the temple. And so this psalmist is writing that again about the people worshiping towards the temple. And praise your name for your loving kindness and your truth. And this verse jumped out at uh, the end of verse 2. For you have magnified your word above your name, all your name. And so that to me is a really key statement in this psalm. And it's saying that the word, his word, God's word is above his name. And so the Jews, they couldn't even speak God's name, right? They didn't even write his name. They, they couldn't bring it to him. Every time they came to it, they would just skip over it. This because they revered and, and respected it so much. And here, this, the, same, uh, the same people are saying, you have magnified your word above your name. So that's, that's almost you know, uh, impossible in a way, right? Because they revered his name so much. And Luke 21, 33 says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. So God's word is going to uh, be forever, even though heaven and earth will pass away. So it's why we must study his word. So, you know, people can say, oh, you guys really emphasize the word, or maybe you even worship the word. And no, it's not so. We don't magnify the word. What's the verse say? <laughs> it says for you, capital Y, you have magnified your word above all your name. So God magnifies his word. He emphasizes it and Jesus confirms it by becoming word in the flesh. And then his words are God's words and which are eternal, right? They hold the keys to salvation and justification and sanctification. The only things that matter are that which bring God glory that please him. How can we not honor his word? It's just our reasonable service, living sacrifices for his namesake but what's even above his name? His word. So, wow, we really need to honor his word. Verse 3, In the day when I cried out, you answered me and made me bold with strength in my soul. All the kings of the earth shall praise you, O Lord, when they hear the words of your mouth. So, again, referring to the word of God. Yes, they will sing. Verse 5 continues, Yes, they shall sing of the ways of the Lord, for great is the glory of the Lord. Though the Lord is on high, yet he regards the lowly, but the proud he knows afar. And so here we have some Hebrew poetry that's contrasting Lord is on high, but yet he regards the lowly. They always contrast the ideas, but the proud he knows from afar. And so um, in Proverbs 18.10, it says, The name of the, of the Lord is a strong tower. And one might now say his word is even a, a higher tower. And the righteous run to it and are safe. So here we have that picture. The Lord is on high, but yet he regards the lowly because the righteous have a means to get to the Lord. They run to it and are safe. James 4, 6 says, but he gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And so I, I, I envisioned a, uh, it was a weird analogy that hit me, is like the Heisman Trophy, right? So it's like a spiritual Heisman Trophy that no one wants, but many of us have. And I'm looking in the mirror when I say it. And it's like when 
you know, the God, the, he keeps the, the proud far off. He gives grace to the humble, but he resists the proud, right? He's like stiff arming us when we're proud, like get away from me, you know, get behind me, Satan, as he said, even to Peter, right? And so that's, uh, you know, with, with the proud, he knows from afar, he keeps them afar off. Uh, verse 7 says, Though I walk in the midst of trouble, you will revive me. You will stretch out your hand against the wrath of my enemies, and your right hand will save me. The Lord will perfect that which concerns me, or perfect, you could say complete. The Lord will complete that which concerns me. Your mercy, O Lord, endures forever. There we have that theme again. Do not forsake the works of your hand. And so as Chuck Smith had said, he said, those things that are of concern to you means the a concern in your relationship with God. So it says the Lord in verse 8 will complete or perfect that which concerns me about my relationship with God, that God's going to take care of it. Like we're his handiwork. And so his mercy endures forever and he's going to complete his handiwork, which is me and you. We know from Ephesians 2.10 that it says, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in him. So he's not going to leave you incomplete. He's going to see, see to it and complete the works of his hands. All right, so here we go. Uh, Psalm 139. So we're, I know everybody's getting into their food comas pretty heavily now, so we'll get, uh, we'll get to this one. Um, I have to say at the beginning of this psalm, this is a, there's something going on with this psalm. I, I don't claim to know what, but spiritually there's, there, there's just a number of things that happened like this week around this psalm. So I'm studying these psalms and I studied 136, 137, 138. I have my Bible open on my desk. It's to 139. I have the commentaries on my desk and I get a text from a friend and he says, hey, I don't know what to make of this. And uh, some of you are on this same text. He goes, uh, I don't know what to make of this. I just had a dream about, and my daughter was in it. And my daughter said, Psalm 139. And he goes, and that was it. And it just went away. And he goes, but it was as clear as day. And I'm like, okay, I'm sitting here with 139 on my desk open. And I'm like, all right, I don't know what's going on. But God, okay, you have my, you have my attention, you know. And so, um, so for Jim, if he's going to be listening, you know, maybe he'll catch something out of this psalm. Also, I saw that I had some you know, written notes in my, my Bible on this, uh, on this psalm, and I was struggling because I didn't really know where we had studied this before. And so I looked on my computer. I see I have Psalm 139. I go, okay, great. I had a lesson there before, and it's just Psalm 139. It's just the verses <laughs> copied over. And I was like, well, that's weird. And then I saw the date, and I said, oh, that's right. We did this at a basketball tournament. I said, we did a Devo on this. I said, so 139. It's like 139 is everywhere. And so this has been popping up. So anyhow, I don't know what that means, uh, spiritually significance, but there's some kind of convergence going on here with Psalm 139. So without ado, uh, we'll, we'll dig into it. All right. So a couple questions on this before we dig into it. This is what we said to the, uh, to the basketball team. So where, where are our car aficionados out there? People who are, I, I know we have some in the fellowship, but Say you're going to go buy a very expensive car. What car would you buy? So what's your dream car? Somebody, somebody give me a dream car that they might have. Volkswagen. Wow, okay. Volkswagen. Anybody else can up a Volkswagen maybe? Ford Ranger. Wow. It's a humble crowd. No, no, everybody's afraid to say like something really expensive. Uh oh, wait a minute. Let's be... Bugatti, there you go. Now you're going big. All right, somebody else is going to say something. She wants a Shelby Mustang. I know that, right? Okay, Shelby Mustang. <laughs> I was waiting for somebody, even Tim, because I know he's looked at cars. All cars are expensive anymore, right? You go out and look for cars. They're all like uh, you know royalty cars out there. So anyhow, so... Thanks for participating. So Bugatti probably wins it as far as the most expensive one. So, okay, what happens when something goes wrong with a Bugatti, right? So when you, when you buy a Bugatti, uh, whoever could afford a Bugatti, right, what comes with it or any car? 
that we that you buy new typically. What do you get when you buy a new car or a certified used car maybe? A warranty? What kind of warranty? Uh, okay, uh, not the word I was looking for. All right. So who, who, who uh, issues the warranty? The manufacturer. Thank you. The manufacturer's warranty. It's the ones who made the car, right? And so what do you do when the problem arises? You take it to an authorized dealer that honors the manufacturer's warranty. Maybe you refer to the manual. You know, I know Tim would probably, of course, right? No way. So you take out the manual. Who wrote the manual? The manufacturer wrote the manual. Okay, so you look at that. That doesn't help you. My car's still messed up. I take it to an authorized dealer. Uh, they have uh, the, the ability to fix it. So are you, are you confident that they're going to be able to fix it? Yes. Okay, they made the car. They designed the parts. They might even make some of the parts. They have access to all the right parts, and the parts are made exactly like the original car, so they fit perfectly. So they have trained mechanics in how this car works, how to take it apart, how to put it back together, enough so to cover it at like no charge under the warranty. Is that right? You, you feel good about that? Is that the way it works? No? Oh, come on. If you bought a Bugatti, I would say that probably works that way, right? They're going to do whatever they can to make that car right, okay? So... The question is now, okay, that you have all of that figured out and that's the way uh, you work with your cars when they break down. What do you do or what steps do you take when there's a problem in your life? Or your life breaks down like the car did perhaps, right? What are some of the problems that come to mind? What can happen in life to break you down? Illness. Sorry, health issues, illness, what? loss of a job. Yeah, lots of things can happen, right? We just talked about some things that happen really bad to Israel and things that, you know, death and families, separated from families, um, lots of things. So what do you do to fix it? Well, I, you don't have to answer that one. We're going to read Psalm 139 <laughs> to understand what we have to do. So I'm going to read verses 1 through 18, and then uh, we'll talk, talk about it as we wrap up. So the title of this is God's Perfect Knowledge of Man. It says, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know my sitting down and my rising up. You understand my thought afar off. You comprehend my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. For there's not a word on my tongue, but behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You have hedged me behind and before. We even talked about it. We hedged the, the singers went out first before the army. So he was hedging them from behind. You hedged me behind and before, and you laid your hand upon me. So side note there, I don't, you know, when people say it doesn't say you can have a personal relationship with God in the Bible, I mean, how much more personal can you get than that, right? And you laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge, verse 6, is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where can I go from your spirit, or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hands shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. Who's God's right hand today? Jesus, right? Yes. If I say, surely the darkness shall fall on me, even the night shall be light about me. Indeed, the darkness shall not hide from you, but the night shines as the day. The darkness and the light are both alike to you. So there's nothing being hidden from God. And here, here we go, right? 4, verse 13, You formed my inward parts. You covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works, and that my soul knows very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. Your eyes, and this one really hit me, your eyes saw my substance being yet unformed. <laughs> like that one, I mean, just you weren't even formed yet, but his eyes were on you. And in your book, they all were written, the days fashioned for me, when as yet there were none of them. Uh, there were none of them. So all of your days were known by God before there was even one in existence. That's amazing. 
Verse 17, how precious also are your thoughts to me, O God. Man, that's amazing. How great is the sum of them. If I should count them, they would be more in number than the sand. When I awake, I am with you. Again, screaming of a personal relationship. So the question is, is your life and my life more valuable than a car? (laughs) Yes, you matter. I matter. We matter. He took such great care in making us. He knew us before we existed or were known. He knew us in the preforming and the forming and so on. I mean, we just read it. You know, he knows every day of my life before they even existed. That's amazing. So God is a way, way, way better manufacturer of me and you than any old car manufacturer of a car. Would you agree? <laughs> yes, right? So if you feel that a car manufacturer and or warranty can protect you and keep you running, How much more should you feel certain, boldly certain, expectantly certain, assuredly certain that this divinely holy, perfect living God manufacturer can make you run like new again, right? Amen. So when was the last time you were in the shop? (laughs) Do you need a spiritual tune-up? Have you ever been in God's garage to register your vehicle for this free warranty, right? And this is a way better warranty than the than the car warranty guys uh, put out there, right? So not only, uh, so I say, well, you know, now's the time. If you've not done that, now's the time. God has an endless amount of appointments, right? And he'll take you in. So to wrap up, uh, and I'll I'll only say that one or two times now, but to wrap up, Warren Wearsby said this. um, I I know we had this up on a slide, but I'll I'll just read it to you. Oh, there it is. Perfect. What we think about God and our relationship, this was his introduction into Psalm 139 and his commentary. What we think about God and our relationship to him determines what we think about everything else that makes up our busy world. Other people, the universe, God's word, God's will, sin, faith, obedience. Wrong ideas about God will ultimately lead to wrong ideas about who we are and what we should do. And this leads to a wrong life on the wrong path toward the wrong destiny. In other words, theology, the right knowledge of God, is essential to a fulfilled life in this world. David contemplated God and wrote for us a psalm whose message can only encourage us to be in the right relationship with him. Hmm, amazing, right? And so if we go down to verse, skip down to verse 23, it says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties. Who has anxieties? Boy, lots of people, right? Try me and know my anxieties and see if there is any wicked way within me. And as the one commentator said, this is like the world's, the, uh, the, the prayer the world needs the most. And lead me in the way everlasting. Right? So in summary, God's mercy endures forever as he chastenly loves us, perhaps even exiling us, And as we obey and turn back to the one who made us and his loving kindness pours out on us, melting these anxieties away and leading me and you in the way in Christ everlasting, he endures forever in us. And all of God's children said, amen.